You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hey, Michael. Andre, you know what? What? I remember when we spoke to Miguel Torres. Yes. And I found that to be a very interesting podcast that we did with him. Well, because it's it's one thing when we talk to a lot of wineries about climate change and, you know, the drought that took place in, in California, we get a lot of, you know, when you're dealing on a small scale and you're dealing with a family scale winery, you're mainly doing a lot of reaction to what the climate is giving you because you're not at the front curve of being able to necessarily invest and invest in technologies that, um, you know, will help the smaller wineries long term. And talking to Miguel and talking to who we have on this podcast, it's interesting to see the people who are at the forefront of making sure that we will continue to have great wines going into the future while we're in the middle of utterly f***ing up our planet. We, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a very delicate way of putting it, Andre. I thought I was being elegant until the very end. Yes, yes, I, I realized that. No, I was, um, I was really impressed uh, by Miguel because he kind of put us on the road to talking to our next guest, who just happens to be Chris Jackson. Tell us what you're doing to uh, create the sustainability and how it relates, one, to Chardonnay and obviously to the rest of your, of your operations. Sustainability is a somewhat complicated topic. Um, you know, there are multiple different definitions of what is sustainable, and sometimes it means different things to different people. Um, at Jackson Family Wines, we think of sustainability a bit more holistically. And what do I mean by holistic? I mean holistic environmental impact, community impact, and uh, social impact. So when I talk about sustainability, it can mean anything from paying a living wage to offsetting your carbon emissions to working with the local Russian River watershed in my backyard to make sure that our water impact is uh, mitigated. And the reason that sustainability is a cornerstone of our ethic, of our philosophy, is because we're a family-run company that hopes to be multi-generational. So, so it's a sine qua non of our vision. Uh, if we're not sustainable, we're not achieving our vision. And I want my sons, my three boys, to be able to grow up in the same beautiful environment with the same integrity uh, that I've been allowed to experience by virtue of being in Alexander Valley in California. So... Uh, in terms of uh, practical application, uh, we're the largest solar generator uh, in the wine industry at Jackson Family Wines. We do what we can to offset our carbon emissions, including with our employees' commutes, and have actually agreed to follow the Paris Protocol in terms of carbon reduction. Uh, under the Obama administration, we got a Green Leadership Award, one of 30 businesses for our sustainability efforts. And re In regards to my personal project, Stone Street, um, we do what we can to mitigate soil erosion, to protect and conserve the land, and to uh, embody uh, uh, sustainable practices that will keep the vineyard uh, uh, producing and existing, hopefully, for a thousand years. Now, um, obviously, your family is, is running a lot of wineries. When you're, um, when you're looking after that many properties, is, is it difficult to uh, manage, say, your carbon footprint, if we're talking about environmental impact, for one? So there's a lot of difficulty in mitigating uh, carbon emissions. Um, it's a challenge that 
humanity is struggling with right now. Fortunately for the majority of our properties, they are relatively concentrated in certain areas, so you can mitigate your carbon emissions through efficient farming practices, but it's a constant conversation. Uh, offsets are critical. You know, some people think that the agriculture itself should be a net negative, and that type of agriculture uh, is uh, regenerative agriculture is going to be necessary to uh, affect climate change and to, to mitigate the harmful trend of human carbon emissions and anthropomorphic climate change. But for us, we'll do anything from utilizing green energy to offsetting our carbon emissions through uh, carbon offsets like reforesting parts of Mendocino, the county to the north of where I live. So it's a challenge. Uh, is it insurmountable? No. Uh, not only is it not insurmountable, I think it's actually an ethical obligation to seriously look at it and to make sure that what you're doing as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, and as a farmer isn't negatively affecting the global community. Is there an organization, as I said, Miguel Torres had mentioned you, is there like an organization that you belong to on a global scale that you guys get together and discuss all of these issues for wineries? So we are actually working with the Torres family to create an international coalition. And there are a lot of different families that have expressed interest in this uh, initiative, but it's still a work in progress. I think before too long, we're going to have some of the major players in the wine industry coming together uh, in support of being more eco-friendly as a industry. But we are a farming industry. Um, so... You know, about 70% of Sonoma County vineyards already are under a uh, third-party certification program uh, uh, for sustainability. And being a farmer, you understand that Mother Nature is responsible for your income, is responsible for your livelihood. So that means that there is, I think, uh, at least in Sonoma County's wine industry and maybe even in California more broadly, a sense of connection to the earth and a sense of moral responsibility to protect her. Now, apart from uh, from carbon, which we've talked about, and a bit about respect for the land, um, one thing that has surprised me uh, as I spend more time like taking a look at how crush pads work is just the amount of water that's being used to produce wine. And I know in, in California, especially recently with the the droughts that are still only a, a few years behind, uh, what are what are your wineries doing to help? Um, I guess just manage your water usage while still keeping your wineries uh, clean and, and sparkly. Uh, we're doing things like rainwater capture. Uh, we invested in a piece of technology called the Blue Morph, which basically just uses ultraviolet light as a way of cleaning tanks versus using water and caustic. Uh, and just managing it, being meticulous in the day-to-day -day operation, you know, using water-efficient rinse heads. Uh, all the simple common-sense stuff in the aggregate can have a tremendous impact. In fact, uh, one of our wineries down in Monterey, which is uh, uh, responsible for the production of La Crema Monterey, is uh, performing at about a two-to-one ratio, so two gallons of water per gallon of wine produced, when oh, the wow. industry average is about seven to one, give or take. So we've been having a lot of effect in terms of water usage reduction. But the other part of it is the agricultural piece, right? Um, this wasn't a part of your question, but I think it's almost more important. No, go ahead. What are you doing agriculturally? Uh, what are you doing in terms of irrigation? And we look at it through thermal imaging by a drone. We look at it through sap flow monitoring so that you're really being targeted if you are going to irrigate as to the parts of the vineyard that need it. 
And we've gotten to the point where some of our uh, uh, water rights are actually larger than what we need. So we're giving up the water rights, which are uh, overall societally limited, and uh, adding water back to the Russian River watershed by uh, giving up a proportion of our uh, traditional water rights. So uh, there's a lot that we're doing from a water conservation standpoint, but it starts in the vineyard. It continues through the facility, uh, through packaging. Um, it's a pretty cornerstone part of our ethic, especially in California, where water is such a point of concern with climate change. So do you usually start these initiatives through one winery and then move it on as it succeeds? Or do you uh, just kind of put it on all the wineries and then go, let's see how it works at that location? Or how does it get it? How does it become the initiative for the company? We uh, test a variety of different technologies. Uh, you're right to point out that some will succeed and some will not. Uh, that's the advantage of being in our position, just like the Torres family. Uh, the, there's a philosophy in, in the United States concept of federalism called the uh, laboratory uh, philosophy, right, where every single one of the 50 states can institute different policy, and then the best policy can be inc incremented across the board. I think we have a similar opportunity, uh, uh, a similar a chance to test policy on our wineries here in California and in Oregon and internationally as well. But there's also a beautiful partnership between our family and UC Davis. They have been working on very green technology, and we were a, a contributor to uh, their lead platinum, uh, a pretty much resource-neutral winery that they developed for academic purposes. And it's a great opportunity for an uh, institution, an academic institution with the right principles to test technologies uh, uh, before they become commercially viable. So it's all an open book conversation. It's a very collegial industry, and uh, we've been having some great conversations back and forth about what's actually possible for vinification, for land management, for making uh, our agriculture as sustainable as it can be. Now, um, I guess uh, stepping a little bit off of the big picture of sustainability, um, I'm not terribly familiar with uh, Stone Street, to be perfectly honest. Uh, and, and you you mentioned I, – I, what's the word you used to describe it at the beginning of the interview? You said it, here? You said it was his personal project. Personal I haven't project, written down yes. your, What do you mean by your personal project? It's the first place I ever made wine. You know, it's the first place I ever pruned a vine. I spent 20 years of my life on Stone Street Estate, which is uh, on the Mayakamas Mountain Range uh, in Alexander Valley. Now, for point of perspective, the Mayakamas Mountain Range is the backbone of Northern California agriculture. And we're in this beautiful location, which is probably one of the most complex estates on the planet. And uh, here's why. So from the bottom of the estate to the top of the estate, you've got about 2,000 feet of elevation gain. You've got uh, aspects, everything from northeast to southwest. You've got differences in clonal material, rootstock, vine age. And we've got about 27 different soil types under vine wow. on this mountain estate. So it's an extreme, insane uh, uh, example of microclimate. And... For me, it's been such a personal passion watching my home estate continue to improve because something that complicated is not something that you unlock over a three-month timetable. It's a, a decade-long process to re really discover the potential of the estate. So I love Stone Street. Uh, it's mostly a, a, a Cabernet, but we also make some high-elevation Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc as well. What's your, what's your favorite 
scrape to work with? <laughs> oh my, what a question. Jesus, um, and I, I like that you just sort of tried to move away. Move, I think you're trying to deflect away from the Chardonnay, Michael, given how much you love Chardonnay. No, I just want I want to know what, what, you know, every winemaker has either a grape that they love working with, and then there's always the grape they wish they could work with. But I think in California, I, I don't think there's a grape that they can't work with. So it'd be fun to find out, one, which one he loves to work with, and if he could work with something, what would it be? You know, I'm a I'm a high elevation Chardonnay kind of guy. <laughs> there we go. I love when you have this paradoxical combination of a low pH and great acidity and lift and just power. Um, and that uh, when you can make an ageable Chardonnay, right? When you can make something that can stand up to a uh, Burgundy Grain Crew in terms of the lifespan of it. And those Chardonnays do exist in California. Stone Street's a great example of one. Uh, there's just so much joy in watching the evolution of it from that microclimate to the bottle to two years old, five years old, 15 years old, uh, because there's so much personality and so much change and so much uh, uh, paradoxical of a combination of flavors there. So I love Chardonnay, but I'm a member of the Jackson family, so uh, that's probably a unsurprising answer to that question well and so you said we're, that you've been we're talking about the uh, andre i'm just going to ask really quickly because it's 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 right on the tip of my tongue we're talking about the uh, 2016 stone street estate chardonnay which is going to be in ontario for for people to to at least try so you you say they're ageable the 16 where would you say its optimal drinking time is probably about seven years in okay i mean I mean, that's a guess, but you don't lose that intensity uh, of fruit. There's still a freshness. So, you so know, you go a little from bit from the state. So I think so. 2023. But it will hold it will hold that position for another decade. Okay. I mean, right now, the 2011 Stone Street Chardonnays are showing beautifully. And uh, you could even go back uh, if you visit our tasting room at some point and drink something from 2006 and see that it still has a great structure and a great elegance to it. Um, they're wines of integrity. Uh, they're wines that are made, I think, with the right principles in mind of showcasing the terroir, the mountainous state, and building for ageability as well. well you got to be careful. An and you got to be, yeah, you got to be careful throwing those invitations out because Michael and I both have a habit of, of showing up when that happens. Um, <laughs> I know you mentioned that uh, you've been you've been working at uh, Stone Street for, for 20 years. Um do you find that the style of uh, winemaking has changed, especially with Chardonnay at, at Stone Street or in, in um, California in general, especially with Chardonnay? So 2004 was our epiphany year. We had this gentleman by the name of Graham Verts, who is a South African winemaker, come in and work with us on the estate as a winemaker for Stone Street. And he was a protege of Pierre Sion prior to him from Verite. And he was the uh, 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 teacher of our current winemaker, Lisa Waldenberg, who is just a phenomenal talent. And what Graham believed is he believed that you should focus on ripeness from a holistic standpoint so that you're not just worried about sugar content and alcohol, but what's the seed look like? What's the skin look like? What's the texture? What's the phenolics of the tannin uh, characteristic of the grape? And he started doing things that would have been crazy from an APA perspective, like picking our Chardonnay at 23 bricks or a Sauvignon Blanc at 22 bricks, right? And he started uh, experimenting with native fermentation. And 
when that happened, uh, the vibrancy of the estate, the natural acidity was preserved. And it's an incredible estate. I mean, you're on the Mayakamas Mountain Range, but unlike a lot of the iconic Mayakamas Mountain Range uh, viticultural areas like Spring and Diamond, you're facing towards the coast, and you're about 10 miles closer to it. Now, Chris, sorry, just to so, jump, sorry, if I could j- jump in just uh, real quick for a second. When you say 23, 23 bricks, I'm guessing that's usually, uh, or sorry, that's because that's lower than what most people would be would be picking at, right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Uh, for California, I mean, for Oregon, it would probably be right on the money. Yeah, and I mean, for but we are in the for, and that's it for for our listeners because we have a, a wine region up in Niagara. Twenty three bricks, I think, is pretty pretty typical. That even would be in pretty a, pretty ripe for Chardonnay, pretty good. Yeah, and even yeah. even in a hot year. So just sort of to get the just needed to, to chime in to make sure that we got got that down, and you weren't used to to picking it at a lower bricks and talking about something different. Yeah, so a California sparkling, from point of perspective, would probably be picked at like seventeen to nineteen bricks. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is still reasonably ripe, but I mean the pHs that we're getting at that bricks level at that sugar level are still around like three point two to three point four. So there's acidity there, and there's decent total acidity as well. Uh, there's balance in the extremity, if that makes sense. So prior to two thousand, um, prior to two thousand and four, were things a little bit riper and maybe a little bit more? And I'm using air quotes here, Californian. I think that would be a fair description. But since two thousand and four, we've been sticking to our guns in terms of what's the best representation of the mountain, and. I think that's been great because that was also the era of overextraction. You know, bigger is better. How much new French oak can you put there uh, in the bottle, in the glass of wine? And uh, there was a while there where Stone Street wasn't really understood for what it could be, but we've gotten to the point because of the focus on restraint and the focus on balance where uh, there is a critical consensus, at least amongst American critics and some international ones as well, that we are old-school, acid-driven Chardonnay uh, and Cabernet and Sauvignon Blanc that's built to age, and that that is actually uh, rare for California. So when you say you're, you're doing less less oak, what did you tune, tone it back from uh, to what it is now? So it would be sitting uh, on some wines around 50%, sometimes north of there. Uh, for point of perspective, I mean, some of our Chardonnays, like our state Chardonnay that you had is probably around 42%, if my memory serves me, uh, which is still a decent amount. But I always analogize winemaking on the mountain uh, with Lisa to a great city skyline. You know, your tannin's going to be a skyscraper. Your acidity is going to be a skyscraper. Your fruit, your oak, it's all going to be extreme. So rather than tampering down on one respective attribute to find balance, you allow the extremity to balance itself out uh, through all parts of the wine being extreme. So it's a uh, it's a pretty crazy venture. I mean, you know, the acidity of that estate Chardonnay is singing. And if you didn't have ripeness to back that up, if you didn't have structure and tannin, you would probably end up with something that's pretty linear uh, and pretty one-dimensional. But it can have that amount of acidity because it has the power to back it up and to fill it out. So this this Stone Street Chardonnay, where is what's its availability? Uh, I guess can, let's go Canada wide and then break it down to Ontario and then. Um, what's it going to cost? Where can I get? Yeah, we're going to get it. Yeah. 
Not that yeah, I'm going to buy know, it, I, to tell you the truth. I'm not a Chardonnay fan, Chris. I have to be honest. You are making my mouth water with the acidity because I do like acidity in my Chardonnay. Uh, but uh, Chardonnay is not my grape, and I have no idea how Andre keeps reeling me back into Chardonnay podcasts. But yeah, and Michael's, Michael's just a bit of a, a, bit of a jerk. Um, I'll buy enough Chardonnay for both of us and force him to drink it if I have to. <laughs> well, you know, I... Um... I love the variety. Uh, I love Cabernet, too. I love Sauvignon Blanc. I'm sure if we all sat down in the gray world of wine <laughs> with all the different options, we'd find something we agreed upon. Uh, Michael just for he's, me, he's, he thinks he's part of the ABC club still, but I think he's just forgotten that the style has changed. I mean, it's. I think it's important. I, I like that you touched on that, that you were even able to pinpoint the, the year with 2004, because my first visit to California was in 2014, and... I didn't find any of those those butter bombs uh, anywhere to be found. It was every winery I visited, you get these very, you know, distinctly California, very ripe, you know, peach, pineapple uh, bottles of Chardonnay, but they all had their great acid backbone. So, I mean, if you're listening to the podcast and you haven't had California Chardonnay in a while, Stone Street's definitely something you should go to pick up. Well, see, Chris, well I, from I come, I perspective... From, oh, go ahead. I, I come from a background where I tasted a lot of oaky, oaky, oaky Chardonnay, the uh, Chateau 2x4. Andre's a little bit younger, so. Yeah, the thing for me is that with our estate Chardonnay, a couple of vintages back, we competed in the Masters of Wine competition in London and won it. Blind tasting were picked as the top Chardonnay uh, in the world at the respective price point. Now, uh, this was uh, 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 the Brits, but, you know, a pretty sophisticated wine community with a high degree of proximity to uh, to Burgundy, and I don't think we would have been able to compete in a blind tasting in Europe if uh, we didn't have the acidity and we didn't have the structure and the ageability to back up our wine. But for me, uh, talking about Chardonnay, um, I think it's probably one of the most diverse grapes on the planet in terms of style and expression. It's what makes it so And I great. think that it is uh, one of the most transparent as to the origin of the place. I mean, whether or not you're talking about a Stellenbosch Chardonnay or a California Santa Maria Chardonnay or a High Mountain Alexander Valley Chardonnay or a Great Blanc de Blanc, uh, there's a lot there in terms of diversity of expression. And uh, for me, I mean, you know, I'm a big Cabernet guy, too. I'm a big Cabernet Franc guy. I even get down with my uh, Syrahs or uh, Australian Shirazes, if you will. Uh, but uh, if you put me on a desert island and said you can only drink one variety of wine from this point forward, I'd probably pick Chardonnay because of the diversity of expression out of it. Chris, we could totally hang out anytime. I'll, uh, I'll be yeah. on the fringes of your hangout. Well, we definitely covered a lot of ground, and I think if Chris ever makes it to Toronto, I'd love to have him in studio so we could talk through some more wines and talk a little bit more about um, sustainability, because that's a topic I'll never get sick of. Well, he was he was definitely um, uh, very, very ready for us, although we didn't really stick to the talking points that we originally thought we were going to. Yes, Still an interesting and, conversation, though. And and what what made that very interesting is that he was not he was not afraid to get real. No, he was not. Whereas where you get some of these people and they, and and they don't want to don't want to rock the boat. I think he was he was ready to 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 throw down. Definitely, definitely. Um, so let's take a moment to talk about our Patreon. Two guys talking wine. Check us out on Patreon. Support the great work that Michael and I are doing. At least I think it's great work. Yeah. Do you think it's yes. great work, Michael? 
I think it's great work. I think it's great, fantastic work. I think it's fabulous work. It's like the perfect, we make the perfect calls. All right, I'm Henri Prue from underwinerview.ca. I'm Michael Pincus of michaelpincuswinerview.com. Take it on, And Michael. this time, I'll take it. And I'm going to do it in such verb, with such flair. I'm going to make this the best one I've ever done. You know what it is, Andre, don't you? Yeah, it's when you say, good night. Ah, well, so much for that. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. This podcast is made possible thanks to our supporters on Patreon. A big thank you goes out to Adnan Isel, owner of Isellers Estate Winery. You can visit them at 615 Concession 5 Road in Niagara-on-the-Lake or check out their website at icellers.ca. Find out how you can support us like Adnan by visiting patreon.com slash two guys talking wine.